Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Saturday Stuff You Should Know Select Edition. Chuck here with my pick of the week. All the way back to 2009, May 19th. Lobotomies, man. This one is crazy. This is one of those that's so good. I wish we could go back and do it again for the first time. So much fun to research. Really interesting and grisly history, medical history. Some of my favorite stuff lies in those topics. And this one is all about lobotomies. Man, oh man, just get ready to learn about the frontal lobe ice pick lobotomy. They actually used to do that. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. It's called Stuff You Should Know. Uh, it's Josh and Chuck, Compton and Long Beach together. Now you know you're in trouble. You What's up, Chuck? <laughs> you, how long have you been sitting on that one? A week. That's good. Thanks. Thank you, Chuck. How you doing? Uh, I'm well, sir. Are you? Pretty good. I'm feeling great, actually, Chuck. I am glad to be alive. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, Chuck? Yes. I think this could arguably pan out to be our greatest podcast ever. You just jinxed us. No, I really don't think so. Chuck uh, did the cheek thing twice before this one. True. He was kind enough to do it a second time. And I don't think we've ever had a topic that Chuck and I were more intensely interested in than this one. I know. It kind of just came out of nowhere, and it's really, well, not out of nowhere because it's historical, but um, in our eyes, out mm-hmm. of nowhere. Which, if you Funny I say in our eyes. Well, yeah, a little foreshadowing from yes. Charles Bryant. Nice one, Chuck. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you will um, get off of LOL Cats for a second and go check your iTunes, you'll find that the title of this one is How Lobotomies Work. Yes. And that's what we're going to be talking about, are lobotomies. So fascinating. It really is. Uh, lobotomies kind of exist in uh, this little um, segment of 20th century culture. Medical madness, I guess you could say, right? Right, and pop culture, because you still hear... Uh it being thrown around like, boy, somebody lobotomized me, scramble my brain, but it's kind of exactly the way it happened. Yeah. Yeah. So, Chuck, you're a lover of great uh, cinema, right? Of course. Of course, you've seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, right? Uh, yeah, I have a poster. You do? Yeah, a good one. Yeah, the one of Jack Nicholson laughing with the watch uh-huh. cap on? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, so, of course, you remember the, the pivotal scene of yeah. the movie where uh, McMurphy is um, lobotomized for being unruly. He tries to kill Awful. Nurse Hatchet because... Nurse well, Ratchet. Nurse Ratchet. Hatchet. That was a Freudian thing. slip right there. It was. She was a hatchet. Yeah. Um, so, uh, well, she was mean. And, and, no, I'm and, totally and, with you. It was the Freudian slip part that got me. I had like eight jokes going in my head at once, okay. and I was like, can't say that, can't say that, can't say that. So, like the yeah. Terminator. Yeah. Scanning for possible That's responses. exactly right, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so he tries to uh, kill Nurse Ratchet mm-hmm. uh, because she was a terrible nurse and kind of evil. Yeah, very evil. And so he gets lobotomized, and they don't show the procedure. Don't worry if you uh, ever want to know what one was like. We're going to go into grisly detail in right. a minute. Um, and he comes out just kind of this drooling imbecile. Awful. Which I have to remind everybody was actually a medical term before it was Imbecile slang. was? Imbecile, moron, and idiot were all degrees really? of uh, mental retardation. Wow. Uh-huh. Isn't that weird? Yeah, well, of course, this is at the same time that people were performing lobotomy, so it was, seems like very archaic, even though it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, well, let's set the scene, okay? Okay. All right, so we're talking the 1930s. Right. And the 1930s were a terrible time to be nuts. Basically, you got locked up in a straitjacket yeah. to keep you from eating your own feces mm-hmm. um, or throwing it at orderlies or doing anything really crazy. Yeah. And that was about it. Right. Um, they had uh, certain um, 
certain techniques like shock therapy, right? Mm-hmm. What do they use? Uh, they still use shock therapy here and there, actually. Mm-hmm. So, you, well, you have like electroconvulsive therapy, right? Right. And you had uh, apparently they also used to use insulin. Oh, okay. Insulin, right? We know how bad that is from uh, I can't remember one of our aging podcasts, right? Right. Um, and they would basically inject a hefty dose of insulin into a patient um, to. Do you okay, Chuck? Yeah. Okay. I thought my paper rustling was going to get the wrath of Jerry. <laughs> they, uh, they, they, we, they know we use crib sheets, buddy. Sure. Um, so they'd inject a patient with a hefty dose of insulin mm-hmm. and um, would basically shock their system, possibly causing convulsions. There was another drug. Was this to, just to subdue them? Hold on. I'm getting to that. This is the okay. craziest part. This, is, this was the grasp that medical science had on mental illness at the time. Right. There's another drug called uh, uh, metrazole, uh-huh. which was a respiratory and um, circulatory stimulant. And in hefty doses, it too produced shock and convulsions. Wow. So if you'll notice, all three of these produced convulsions, the yeah. shock therapy. And the reason that they did that was because there was a suspicion that there was a link between epilepsy, mm-hmm. convulsions, and mental illness. And that if you had one, you couldn't have the other. Right. So by producing convulsions, they thought that they were treating mental illness. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah. So you could have just had epilepsy and that the, they would sit you in the electroconvulsive shock therapy chair and to treat you. Yeah. They'd stick a little paddle in your mouth and turn on the juice. I tell you what, man, I like I sometimes look back and say, boy, the 1950s, that would have been cool to live back then. But then you hear stories like this and you kind of forget about the downside. Yeah. ECT is definitely one of the downsides yeah. of this era, right? All right. So, um, Another problem with this was that uh, the mental um, uh, mental care. Wow. Have you had a lobotomy? <laughs> I had a little bit of one, yeah. Um, no, I had some metrazole earlier. Okay. I'm all jacked up. Nice. Um, the, uh, the, the, uh, the state of mental hospitals in the U.S. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the 30s and 40s was that they were overcrowded. Right. Because, I mean, if you can't treat anybody, really, you can't treat their mental illness. Once right. they come in, they're in. Yeah, and right. they wanted uh, docile patients. They wanted people that didn't cause trouble, and uh, really any way that they could get there was kind of okay at the time. And this right, and this was also before drug therapy was created. Right. So in the thirties, nineteen thirty six, this new procedure comes about. A right, well, nineteen thirty five. Oh, was it thirty five? I thought in, it was thirty six in Portugal. Nineteen thirty five. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Go yeah, ahead. that was uh, Doctor Antonio Egas Moniz. Nice. And Dr. Almeida Lima in Portugal uh, performed the first lobotomies by drilling holes into the skull on uh, either side of the prefrontal cortex and injecting alcohol in there to destroy the fibers okay, that so, connected it. And th- this was actually based on um, an earlier study from 1933 by a couple of uh, Yale researchers who removed the prefrontal cortexes from a pair of monkeys. Yeah, Lucy and... and uh, who was the other one? Binky, we'll say. Okay, Lucy and Binky. Yeah, um, these two monkeys had their prefrontal cortex, cortexes removed, and um, the researchers found that they could still... They still had intellect, right? but they were lacking the emotion that led to violent outbursts when they didn't get their way. Yeah, Becky, by the way. Close. I like Binky better. Okay. Um, can we stay with Binky? Sure. Okay. So the the uh, doctor uh, um, oh the Portuguese uh, guy F- Fulton and Carlisle oh no you're going back to Portugal yeah Doctor Moniz yes saw Fulton present um, one of the Yale researchers saw Fulton present his uh, findings and he thought huh 
Right. My mental patients act like um, monkeys in a violent outburst when they don't, you know. Right. When they see things that aren't really there, right? So let me uh, get my hands on a cadaver and see what I can uh, see what I can work out with the right. brain. So this early, this early, uh, it was called the prefrontal lobotomy. Right. Started out like you said by drilling holes in the skull mm-hmm. and adding alcohol. And the whole reason why Chuck the the prefrontal cortex, why the frontal lobe? What's so important about that? Well, the the prefrontal lobe cortex, Josh, uh, has a number of complex functions um, called executive functions is what they're known as. Mm-hmm. We're talking uh, high-level decision-making, planning, reasoning, understanding, personality, ex- personal expression, that right. kind of thing. So basically your personality, the way you create things, the way you see the world, and how you react to the world, right. e.g. emotions. Right. This is all. This is all generated here. It's, it, it originates in the yes. prefrontal cortex, and you are stabbing the front of your head right now as yes. you speak. Your Thank forehead. You. Thanks, Chuck. Uh, and so that, uh, as we all know, that the brain is connected. It's all connected together. Sure, Re- sending and receiving signals like uh, like mass email. And uh, so, what you have here, you got two types of uh, matter: gray and white matter. Gray matter includes uh, neurons and brain cells and uh, blood vessels and things like that. White matter is uh, axons and nerve fibers, and they connect the gray matter and carry messages uh, with electric impulses. So, so what the gray matter is where these impulses are generated. The yes. white matter translates them or transfers them. Yeah, transmits. It transmits. Sure. One of the trans. Uh, so a lobotomy, what that does is it's intended to sever the white matter between the different areas of gray matter, thus interrupting the uh, the transmission essentially right and the problem um with uh dr moniz's technique the early technique using alcohol is like you said the brain's all connected and alcohol being a liquid it's kind of hard to keep in one place right so it started to go and destroy other areas of the brain right not a very good idea but he was on to something he 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 was on to something by destroying the white matter right yes so instead he decided to be a little more precise and he, he kept with the uh, hole drilling method, uh-huh. which is actually based on an ancient um, ancient method of brain surgery called trepanation. Right. Which actually, what? Gosh, I could, I'm going to be in trouble here. We had a fan write in and, and suggest trepanation, and that's what got me on lobotomies in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I apologize. So if you're out there listening, this oh, is, you don't remember the fan's no, name? Thank the, you, nameless fan. We this love is for you. you, Binky. Thanks, Binky, <laughs> or Becky. <laughs> Um, yeah, and actually in the article, How Lobotomies Work, um, there's a cool uh, relief from a Hieronymus Bach um, painting of some early physician trepanning uh, a patient. And he's got really? like a little segment of uh, the skull ex- lifted off and wow. the brain's exposed and he's just poking around in there. Um, but okay, so he's still, Dr. Moniz is still using the drilling method, right. but now he's inserting instruments in there. Right. He inserted this one that sounded like... Um, it's a handle with a, a little loopy wire that comes out, but yeah, it retracts. Lu- Lucatum. Yes. Mm-hmm. So when you when you push it when you push down the back of it, the loop extends out, and then you can pull it in and just basically remove hunks of prefrontal cortex. Yeah, of white matter. Right, and that's exactly what. Ho- hopefully, he white did. matter. <laughs> yeah, you would think. Um, and it was successful. Right. Well, yeah, sure. 
To to again to varying degrees. Yeah, and maybe not again because I think that's the first time we said that. But yeah, the the lobotomy was successful to varying degrees. Very varying degrees. But there was this guy who went and saw um, Dr. Moniz perform one of these. Yeah, this is where it gets good. And this guy was named Dr. Walter Freeman. Mm -hmm. And for probably about, what, 50,000 people uh, in the U.S. alone, this meeting between these two men was the worst thing that ever happened in the history of humanity. Right, because that's about how many people were lobotomized between uh, for about uh, over about a seven-year period in the U.S. Was it just seven years? Yeah, 49 wow. to 56. Wow, okay. So heavy work. So then there was many, many more, actually. Um, but yeah, the, Dr. Walter Freeman became an immediate um, evangelist, he was called, for lobotomies. Right. Um, he, he tried Moniz's technique uh, with, a, with a partner um, and did it successfully for a while. But the problem is, is it was still surgery. Right. It required a surgeon to do it. Um, Operating room. Right. And Freeman was actually not a neurosurgeon. He was a neurologist. Right. It um, required anesthetic. Yeah. So there, there were some, some drawbacks to it in Freeman's opinion. Right. Expense being one of them, time mm -hmm. and resources. So he created something that was a lot handier, a lot easier, and a lot quicker. And that is what we call the transorbital or ice pick lobotomy. Right. Can, I, can I say what this is? Yes. He determined that if you uh, took something which is technically called an orbitoclast, but it really looks sort of like an ice pick. You said it yesterday on our uh, webcast. It, it's, it's an, an ice, ice pick. pick, yeah. Uh, call it a rose by any other name, exactly. So you put this uh, ice pick over over the eyeball, but under the uh, the bone there. What's that called? What's uh, that between called? the eyeball and the eyelid. The eyeball and the eyelid. Until the back of the um, orbital bone. Right. So once you get to the back of the orbital, orbital bone, there's a little uh, resistance there because it's bone. <laughs> yeah. And so enter a little uh, silver hammer. And so he just tinks on that thing until it cracks through. And then he's got a pretty clean passageway to the frontal cortex. Yep. And so you've got an ice pick sticking out of your eye. He, uh, he scrambles it up a little bit once it's in there. And then he does the same thing on the other side. Yep. And, uh, and 10 minutes later, you're lobotomized, literally. So he'd do both sides, right? Right. Um, he got kind of good at this. Yeah. Dr. Freeman got really, I guess you could say, good at this, or at least very fast. Mm -hmm. um, in one two-week period in West Virginia, he performed lobotomies on 228 people. Yeah. And in one day, he performed lobotomies on 25 patients, right? Uh -huh. In one day. In one day. So he's just basically bringing them in and sending them out. He's exactly doing that, actually. I read an interview with one of his assistants at the time, and he said he would literally not take breaks. As the patient left, another one would be brought in. Ten minutes later, boom. And I don't think we mentioned yet, he, he, before he does this, he doesn't use anesthetic. He knocks them out with uh, electroshock. Right. So it's making use of two extremely primitive and yeah. violent um, techniques, right? Big time. And the result was... Uh, like we said, varied. I mean, it ranged anywhere from uh, people being satisfied and, you know, seemingly successful, like uh, highly emotional people, suicidal, all of a sudden being more docile and not so worried to uh, to death, and uh, people rendered uh, vegetables, literally. So, yeah, well, Dr. all over the map. Dr. Freeman actually referred to lobotomies um, informally as soul surgery. Yeah, I hate that. The reason it's why is, is because he was basically removing what 
kind of what makes us human. Mm-hmm. People could still function it, it, under a successful lobotomy. People could still function. Uh, they could still talk. Right. But they weren't. They weren't doing anything. They weren't bringing anything yeah. to the table. There was no reason for them to exist so much anymore. It was for the personality most surgery. Exactly That's right. Um, and uh, he would. Uh, he did it um, again so fast, so so often. And he had a touch of a showman to him. Yeah. That he basically did. He had a lobotomobile. Yeah. In which he performed demonstrations, right? Mm-hmm. He toured the country, went he all did. over the place. I think he ended up doing estimates run from 2000 to 5000. Right. Between uh, 1946 and 1967, transorbital lobotomies um, in 23 states in right. the US, right? He'd perform with both hands. He would stick the ice picks in with both hands at once mm-hmm. to add a little flair. But, showmanship. Yeah, so he was basically performing shows, mm-hmm. lobotomy shows. Um, and not everybody reacted well to these. Um, right. Th- there was seasoned surgeons who had seen tons of gore and blood and horrible things in their lifetimes um, would vomit uh, watching these things. Some had to leave. Um, there was a, a, a nurse whose account I read of uh, watching a lobotomy said uh, the when he moved the ice picks back and forth, it made the sound of tearing cloth. Yeah. Um, later on in the USSR, which actually banned uh, lobotomies in, I think, 1953. I think, before we did, which was is embarrassing. Yeah. Well, uh, 14 years before we did, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, a, a, a physician named Nikolai Orsarensky. Orsareski? Orsareski. Thanks, dude. Uh, Osareski. Osareski. Um, he called. He said that lobotomies violate the principles of humanity and change an insane person into an idiot. Again, remember a medic- medical term at the time. Sure. Um, so there, I, I imagine that there was something that affected you. Were you uh, a human being, like a real human being? Right. Seeing this, this rough, violent um, misguided or unguided procedure yeah. being performed that it would affect you in some way, like some very primal part of you would say that's not supposed to happen. Right. Plus, there was no uh, official scientific basis for this. It was basically, hey, look at the result in some cases. Right. That's, which is what they were kind of basing this whole thing on. And, and also, as we were saying about Freeman being a showman and doing it so fast, there was one visit to a mental institution in Iowa. I don't remember what year it was, um, but Freeman killed three people in one visit. Yeah. And one of the people, this is so awful, um, he was doing his little show-off thing with the two picks at once mm-hmm. instead of as his own procedure dictated one and then the other side. Right. He, he was doing two picks at once, so the patient's on the table um, with two ice picks sticking out of his eyes, and Freeman says, I'm going to take a photo of this, steps back to take a photo. One of the ice picks slips and kills the patient instantly. Right. So uh, apparently Freeman was said to have basically just packed up right then and moved on to the next place without missing a beat or saying, right. geez, that stinks. Packed up the lobotomobile? Yeah, and hit the uh, road. You know one person he lobotomized, Josh? I know you do. He lobotomized John F. Kennedy's sister, Rosemary. Yep. Dr. Freeman did in 1941. Uh, Rosemary was 23 years old, and, uh, and early on in her childhood, she was uh, shy and easygoing, they say. But as a teenager, shocker, she became rebellious and moody, mm-hmm. which, and that's what struck me in a lot of these cases is so many of them were just normal human emotions, like anything from postpartum depression to, a, you know, a, a overactive child. You know, it's just unbelievable. Right. So she was lobotomized, and uh, 
Afterward was rendered, basically, uh, she couldn't speak. She had the mental capacity of an infant, couldn't control her bodily functions. And the Kennedy family, basically, from that point on, said that she uh, was mentally retarded, which they claim that she may have been before, but who knows? You want to talk about another guy? Howie. Chuck and I have a shared hero. Uh, yes. He is an indomitable 350-pound, uh, 6'3 bus driver who has this gentle, tender personality. Right. And his name is Howard Dully. And at the age of 12, Howard Dully met uh, Dr. Freeman under unfortunate circumstances, meaning Dr. Freeman had a couple of ice picks on him when they met. Right. And um, Howard ended up under Freeman's care because of his stepmother, right, Chuck? Yeah, he. Uh, it was the kind of the classic story. The father gets remarried to a stepmother who is uh, not very patient and understanding with her son. That sounded like, you know, sounded like he may have been a little rambunctious. But what twelve-year-old boy isn't? And I think you have some good notes, actual notes. Yeah, well, in, in Freeman's notes that Dully turned up later, and we should say Howard Dully created this great radio piece that's mm-hmm. on NPR. You can actually find um, by typing in my lobotomy in Google. I think it's the first thing that comes up. Right. It's, it's really one of good. the most amazing things you've ever heard where he just goes and retraces the steps of his lobotomy that he got when he was 12 and right. tries to get to the bottom of what happened. We typically don't recommend people go listen to other things that <laughs> it's not us, but yeah. that's how good it is. Right. Yeah, exactly. It is that good. Uh, it's way better than us, actually. Yeah, sure. Um, but he finds the Dr. Freeman's notes on his case, and apparently his stepmother pled her case to get him lobotomized by pointing out that he daydreams a lot, and when you ask him what he's daydreaming about, he says, I don't know. Right. Uh, he doesn't want to go to bed, and when right. he does, he sleeps well. Right. And my personal favorite, he turns on the lights in rooms when uh, there's broad daylight streaming in. Unbelievable. I know. That kid deserves a lobotomy. Yeah. But one of the things, and I think one of the reasons why you and I both uh, look up to Howard Dooley was because he has wondered his whole life, Uh how different would he be? Right. Like, I I lived hard and fast as a younger man, right? And I've often wondered. Not like your calm days now. Right, yeah. (laughs) Your puritanical days. Actually, way, way (laughs) harder and faster. Um, So, but I've, I've often wondered, you know, how much sharper would I be had I not lived like that? Right. But th- this was my own doing. It was my own choosing. Sure. Howard Dooley had to think that same thing, like, w- is there something wrong with me? Is there a part of me missing through no choice or fault of his own? Uh-huh. We should also say that um, when Howard's stepmother found that he was not a vegetable, she just got him out of the house and he became a ward of the state. Yeah, so, so he went to an, an all-around bang-up anyway. lady. Yeah, yeah. so um, again— in the end, he finds you know there there really isn't something wrong with him. That he's a pretty terrific person, as as he as it turned out, lobotomy or not. Right. It took him a long time though. I mean, he battled addiction and uh, various forms of mental illness his whole life after this. And uh, I think going this this special that aired, and he wrote a book and went and talked to his father. After forty years, he actually finally spoke to his dad about it, mm-hmm. and that seems to have been the thing to get him over the edge to not feeling like. A freak anymore, as he called it. Yep, you can actually hear him working it out in my lobotomy. Yeah, that big deep voice. Yeah, he sounds kind of like Sam, uh, not Sam Shepard. Sam, what's the guy? Um, The Big Lebowski. Sam Elliott. Sam Elliott. Yeah, that's what he reminded me of. The dude. Yeah, he also had that big mustache too, sort of like Sam Elliott. Yeah, that handlebar biker mustache. Right. 
So, uh, Chuck, whatever happened to lobotomies? What, where, why'd they go the way of the dinosaur disco? Well, uh, a couple of reasons. I mean, one, there was a lot of gaining steam with the, the criticism of it because they found that they were lobotomizing uh, criminals. They were lobotomizing soldiers from World War II because— Criminals against their will sometimes. Right, but they lobotomized soldiers because hospitals were overcrowded. Mm-hmm. Veterans. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. And so that that was kind of gaining steam. And then the introduction of uh, Thorazine, basically, was kind of Thorazine what started it all. Thorazine everything. Um, I believe that somebody said that Thorazine was to the treatment of schizophrenia, uh-huh. that insulin, or I'm sorry, that penicillin was right. to the treatment of uh, infectious diseases. Right. Which is a pretty big comparison. Yeah, big time. So Thorazine was developed in uh, 1950, and as it began to, to fall into widespread use, um, lobotomies kind of uh, fell out of widespread use. And Dr. Freeman himself, he, uh, he had one last one, one last lobotomy in 1967, right? Yeah, he killed a woman with of a brain hemorrhage mm-hmm. after the third try, I think. This her. was her third lobotomy. Yeah, and uh, she wasn't just you know some mental patient in Iowa. This is a housewife, mm-hmm. and uh, when she died of uh, I, I believe a hemorrhage after the procedure, that third procedure, that was it. He was banned from surgery, right? Uh, performing any kind of surgery from that that point on. And actually spent the rest of his days until he died in 1972, traveling the country yeah. in a camper. Which Still I wonder it. if it was his lobotomobile. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, he wasn't pitching it. He was actually going around trying to um, find. He was visiting old patients right. to prove that he had done good, right. and he had done some good in a couple of, of uh, cases. In several cases, I imagine uh, his first one. Uh, was a woman, uh, I can't remember her first name, but it was Ionesco. Yeah. And she uh, she was violently suicidal, as described by her daughter. And afterwards, she went on to, to live a happy, fulfilled life. Yeah, but, you know, every every successful case I read about, they would say things like they weren't violently suicidal anymore, and they were just, you know, kind of happy. But it, it still seemed to be that lights are on, but no one's home thing. Like the couple, the married Very couple. Robert Palmer of you. Yeah, the the married couple was uh, the the husband had his wife lobotomized because she was so emotional, and uh, she, she was took suicidal pills. as well. Yeah, yeah, and she says that she was happy as a clam, and he was satisfied. He said that she came home and she never caused any more trouble, and she was just happy, and she could still <laughs> no cook, back talk. Yeah, she could still cook and clean and do all the things she could do before, and she agreed. I just haven't been worried about things since then, and she was in her eighties. But you know, you read that and. Emotions are normal. Mood swings are normal. It's uh, agreed, but I do I do think that there is a certain threshold, and if you're violently suicidal, you know maybe a lobotomy was a better option. Yeah, but I also want to know what the criteria for all this was back then. There wasn't any. So yeah, so put, put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> but one of the most unsettling things, one of the most unsettling things that uh, I, I found from this article is that lobotomies are still performed today. Yeah, in England, right? The UK is one of a few countries um, where it's it's no longer called lobotomies because lobotomy has such a horrible stigma attached to it, right. and for good reason. Neurosurgery for a mental disorder. NMD. Yeah. And today, apparently, they use MRIs as guides to be more precise, but pretty much this type of surgery, psychosurgery as it's called, um, is 
pretty much the same thing. It's destroying white matter connections, yeah. and you're removing people's emotional selves. Right. I mean, there may be something to to that, uh, but certainly it was so non-specific and non-technical to jam right. ice picks and and just blindly move them back and forth. Right. That, uh, no wonder there was all kinds of results. Yeah. <sighs> So, Chuck, we are both kind of nuts, and I'm really glad it's not like 1946, because yeah, we'd yeah. be in big trouble. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My wife, Emily, and I would both be on the uh, the lobotomy table, I think. I'd drive you to see uh, Freeman. Thanks. Sure. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, that's it. That's it for lobotomies, buddy. Yeah. I encourage people to go out and uh, listen to Howard Dully's uh, uh, radio show there. It's really great. Okay. Uh, hopefully, you guys enjoyed this one. You can uh, read all about lobotomies on... HowStuffWorks.com You know what to do uh, You know, handy search bar, etc uh, And uh, Chuck Let's uh, let's hawk some Audible stuff, shall we? Our sponsor, Audible.com uh, Hit it Okay, so if everyone goes to www.audiblepodcast.com Slash stuff And sign up to get one free download from Audible.com's 50,000-plus titles of audiobooks, stand-up comedy, mm-hmm. spoken word, speeches, pretty much anything you can listen to is right there. Yes. And I was on there browsing uh, just this morning, and I found one of my all-time favorite books, 1491 by Charles Mann. Good one? Great one. I've uh, read that. Mann runs around... Um, the Americas, basically, to archaeological sites and gets the scoop on the most recent findings and and finds that there were way more people in the Americas before Columbus showed up than we realized. Really? Uh, And yeah, there's a lag between the arrival of Columbus uh, to Hispaniola and the, the second wave that followed within the next 50 years. The second wave found that this, you know, that it was virgin territory. There's almost no one there. Turns out it's because about 100 million people died of smallpox from Columbus's first arrival. Wow. Between then and the second wave. It's fascinating That's stuff. a mini-sode right there. You just did one. Well, maybe we'll do a bigger sode on it. A bigger sode? Yeah, what about you? You've been on? Yeah, I'm going to recommend uh, just quickly Stephen Colbert of uh, the Colbert Report. Nice. Oh, I, I saw it. his uh, portrait, his National Gallery portrait in oh, the yes. Smithsonian <laughs> recently. It was awesome. With his familiar uh, scowl. Yeah. I love that guy. So, yeah, he has a very popular book that he reads himself called I'm an American and So Can You. <laughs> and that's all I need to say about that. Yep. It's hysterical. Nice, Chuck. So uh, you can get either one of those titles for free by going to www.audiblepodcast.com slash stuff and signing up. And that is Audible right there, baby. Listener Let's do mail. listener mail. Let's do it. Josh, I'm just going to call this. We got a lot of great feedback for the high fructose corn syrup. Yeah, yeah. So much I was so happy that, about that we're going to have probably like three podcasts in a row. Where we're going to be reading some of that mail. I don't know really, what it is. Yeah, it's really we should. I can bring back haikus. Okay, all right. <laughs> so I'm just going to call it intelligent listener mail because uh, Max is a smart guy, and I like these most of all. Uh, I'm a graduating senior in the business college, but when I'm not in class or listening to podcasts, I almost always uh, enjoy listening to philosophy. It's more or less my passion. More specifically, I'm interested in world religion, metaphysical theory, and man's relationship to nature and the universe. So, this guy is obviously smarter than we are. Heavy. Uh, To say that fructose corn syrup or any other man-made chemical compound does not occur naturally, you're speaking with a basic assumption that man is something different than nature. 
Unfortunately, for those who can find themselves above nature in importance or authority, this is not the case. It's our Western culture and religion that strengthens this point of view. Man didn't plop into nature as a separate and flawed phenomenon in a stupid, natural universe. Man came out of nature. Man is nature. Man is the universe. To borrow a quote from my favorite philosopher, Alan Watts, In your seeing, your hearing, your talking, your thinking, your moving, you express that which it is which moves the sun and other stars. So to perceive yourself as something different is only an inability to identify yourself with the cosmos. So, Josh, man's manipulation of chemical compounds is really the world's manipulation of itself, or perhaps the universe manipulating itself, and that is certainly a natural occurrence. Boom. And that is what happens when I offhandedly say something is man-made. Right. Nice. Well, what's the guy's name? Max, and I I dig philosophy too, so I thought it was kind of cool. We dig you, Max, and uh, we really dig anybody who sends us something, especially if it's as intelligent as that. Uh, if you want to show off your ginormous brain, send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 